from VinePair's New York City headquarters. I'm Adam Teeter, and today we are talking with Sarah Jessica Parker. Sarah Jessica, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for having me. It's really exciting to have you on the podcast um, and to have you know someone who's just released you know a, well your wine's been in the market now for what two years I think it has yeah I think our <laughs> um, I think our you know as I'm sure I'm not alone in, in in sort of saying that I I'm I've lost time a bit like I sincerely have totally I'm not able to um, point to an event and tell you exactly what month it happened anymore um, but I think <laughs> I, I would think uh, two years sounds about right and is fair and wouldn't be controversial. So that's perfect. So uh, SJP launched two years ago. Can you talk to me a little bit about the project, how it came to be, and how you got involved? Sure. I guess more, more, more likely about three years ago, I got a phone call from my agent um, sharing with me that there were two gentlemen in New Zealand uh, who were curious about collaborating on a wine with me. And I was as mystified as you probably are <laughs> and um, really couldn't understand why anybody would want to work um, with me on something that is so seemingly complicated and is such a serious business. Um, but I was curious and uh, got on the phone with them and um, they obviously enlightened me and elaborated on, on their inquiry. And I was really intrigued. I I turned out um, a wonderfully coincidentally that we were already consumers of their brand. Um, oh, wow. We have a home in Ireland and our grocery store, Super Value, <laughs> is <laughs> where we purchase our wines. And um, we had been buying in Vivo wines for uh, probably as long as they've been in business and were, were not just buying them, you know, in duress, but choosing to go back time and time again to our local super value and purchase in Viva wines because we really like them. And I just hadn't put it together yet. Mm -hmm. um, so we had this very exciting phone call. I still nonetheless was confounded. Um, they came to New York. We met, we sat down, we started tasting wine. Um, I shared with them my, my hesitance, Mm -hmm. which was based solely on just feeling ill-equipped and not knowledgeable about a business that's real. And for many people, you know, generations of families involved. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the biggest, the most important thing for me about any new business venture in which I feel ill-equipped is really finding out how much someone's willing to let me learn and how involved they'll really let me be and how much they're willing to share their information and talent and experience so that I can be, um, you know, more of a worthy partner. And they, and they were, and they have, and they continue to. And it's just been such a wonderful, surprising, exciting, joyful experience. And I'm incredibly fond of Tim and Rob and think they're just, first of all, swell guys, but they're also very good at what they do. Um, I respect them professionally and personally. So it's been, it's been an absolutely lovely experience. Awesome. So now that we sort of know a little bit about how the brand started, I want to take a step back and talk for a bit about just how you came to wine in the first place. So um, prior to obviously doing this project with them, I know you're a wine drinker. Mm -hmm. um, what wines were you drinking? And you know, do you have any sort of memories of of wines in the past or, or wine experiences that you had had prior to the project? Yes, um, I I think I came to 
drinking wine probably later than many. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't really understand it. I thought I wasn't, I felt I didn't know enough to ever order it in a restaurant. I, I feel like everyone feels that way. <laughs> I got very embarrassed. Like a lot of people, <laughs> I would rely on one person who we all assumed had all the right. information. <laughs> um, and so that would sort of dictate what we were drinking. I always was, you know, stood at aisles in wine stores, you know, absolutely stock still, never knowing what to do, seduced by labels, felt I couldn't go back to the wine merchant one more time and say to him or her, I'm sorry, can you help me? I'm looking for what I think maybe is this and we're going to eat this. And so I came to it late, but I think because I've had the privilege of traveling so much for work, um, the end of so many days when you're traveling, especially to countries outside of our own. And well, in my case, they eventually involve dinners and, and, and drinks. And the more I traveled and the more I was um, reliant upon local servers, you know, in you know European capital cities, but in smaller towns and communities and villages and parishes and far-flung places, the more I learned about wine, you know, the more I loved it and grew to love it because I was experiencing, you know, more often than not local wine, you know, table wine, understanding what wine meant, you know, in a, in a more whole way. And it just became something that I really loved that my husband and I loved. And so then we traveled when we traveled for pleasure, we would always try to get information from, you know, whatever restaurant we were eating at, like what wines were they excited about? What were the great local wines? Um, You know, we were constantly trying to peel labels off bottles and bring (laughs) them home and find them in this country. And, and, and even obviously in this country, we have incredible wines and we have super knowledgeable uh, servers and sommeliers who love sharing their affection for wine. And so I think we felt more comfortable, um, but I have to think we, we also, we're more comfortable with just the pure pleasure of enjoyment and not worrying right. so much about being knowledgeable or an authority. Um, and like I said, traveling for me, a huge part of that experience is obviously culture, but food and wine. <laughs> so when, so when you were drinking wine for the most part, was it always with food? Yeah, I never, it took me a long time to sort of think of wine as something that can stand on its own. It, you know, mm-hmm. I would, you know, if I saw someone having a glass of wine at four in the afternoon, that just baffled me. (laughs) How did you arrive at that? Like, what's the process? And, and there's no cheese next to you. There's no oyster. There's no, you know, carved meat. There's no charcuterie. Like, and so now here I am at four (laughs) o'clock having a glass of wine and I get it. I totally get it. (laughs) Very cool. So when they, when they did approach you um, and you started thinking about it, what was the process of creating the first wine? So the first wine I know was a Sauvignon Blanc. Correct. Were you a big Sauvignon Blanc drinker at the time? And were you a big New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc drinker? Okay. So here's the thing. I was not, and I've been very candid about this. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. And maybe this is typical of an American you know, consumer who isn't mm-hmm. educated. Chardonnay always seemed easy and understandable to me. It made sense. It, it didn't challenge me. Um, I could, you know, upon a sip, I could understand it. It, it told me, you know, who it was and what it was. And so I just got into the habit. And of course, 
and and I didn't so I didn't know anything about Sauvignon Blanc, which to me seemed a much more and I'm probably all wrong and prepared for lots of comments from people who were like, she's an idiot. But <laughs> it Sauvignon Blanc seemed more complicated. It seemed like it could be more things. It could, it had more elasticity. It didn't sit, you know, with certain kind of um, rigid boundaries around it. And I, even though I suspected that it would be more right for what I was ordering, I panicked about it. So there was one person I know who always ordered Sauvignon Blanc and I was so grateful to be in his company because he did it with such ease and he knew about it. And when I had it, and he ordered it. I liked it, but it, it, it intimidated me. But I also knew that New Zealand is producing, you know, especially the Marlboro region, obviously, is producing, some might argue, some of the best Sauvignon Blanc in the world. Yes, so for sure. I, I was drawn to it, but I didn't know where to begin. And that was one of the things that terrified me most about this collaboration as I just felt so undeserving of this endeavor and exercise. But, you know, among the many wonderful things that's come of it is I've learned about the glory of <laughs> Sauvignon Blanc and what yeah. it can be and, you know, how, hospital, how, how hospitable it is to ideas and that it doesn't have to be high and pointy. It doesn't have to be thin. It can be more full figured. You know, how do you honor what is called a Sauvignon Blanc and those grapes and still make it your own? And that's what we were able to do. And the blending process was incredible. It was, you know, terrifying at first. And then it was, you know, like a eureka moment. And we sort of, I asked like, how much can I push this? And, you know, how much, uh, how much flexibility do we have? I don't want to destroy the institution, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, and we arrived at something that was most importantly, really exciting to Rob, you know, who's the winemaker at InVivo and, you know, an incredibly talented person who also, you know, was willing to push back and stand by the things that were important to him, which is also what you want in a partnership. Um, and he was so excited about that, the blend and, and I was, and when that first bottle, so we did this in New York, we did the blending okay. in New York, he went back to New Zealand, you know, they do what they do there and they did some unconventional things, which they don't typically do with the Sauvignon Blanc. And then the bottle arrived and it was, I was so nervous to open it and taste it because I, I, I had a feeling that, you know, things can change, right? Things can change in the process. And then it's on the airplane and then it's traveling and then there's temperature right. and then there's a bottle and then there's the glass and then there's sunlight. And would it still be that sort of magical, you know, experience that liquid gold that we felt we had arrived at? Um, and I didn't want to open it because I didn't want to be disappointed, but it was, I can't even tell you how exciting it was when I chilled it and then opened it. And I was actually all by myself and it was just, uh, it was a little bit of heaven came out of that bottle. That's very cool. It's really, it's interesting to hear you say, uh, you know, your sort of your point about Chardonnay that it, it felt more accessible to you uh, at the time, because I feel like now 
that's become Sauvignon Blanc for so many drinkers, right? It's yeah. like, it is the white wine that everyone yeah. feels comfortable with and orders. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, I mean, you, you talked a little bit about the blending process, but um, when you decided to do this, right, obviously there's lots of people who put their name on products, but what's interesting is you've really gotten involved. So I'd like to talk about that a bit. Was that really important to you from the beginning? Um, and besides the blending, how else have you been involved in the creation of the wine? So I have a kind of fundamental approach to any professional practice or um, initiative endeavor, which is I just don't know how to not be involved. It's just the way that I work. It's I feel honor bound by the opportunity and the process. And I don't feel entirely principled about putting my name on something in a casual way. I feel for better or worse, I have to be held accountable. But not only that, I feel like I'm much more comfortable and capable to talk about a project when I've actually been involved, when I understand what it is to blend grapes and try to arrive at something and play by the rules and understand the rules and when can I bend the rules. And it's been the way I've worked as a producer. It's been the way I worked in fragrance. It's been the way I worked in my shoe business. And I'm just better for being in the conversation down to what I call splitting the atom. And Tim and Rob, they said they wanted that from me. I don't know that they really expected it. (laughs) Or knew what they were going to get, yeah. Correct. But we're better partners. I'm better with more information than less. I can talk you know, I can talk to you about an experience. I can share genuine enthusiasm versus sort of, um, a mercenary approach, you know, I'll do this, then I'll talk about it. And then perhaps we'll make money. I don't feel that that's the best way for me to work. So I'm always involved. I'm involved in all the marketing ideas. I'm involved in the label. I'm involved in, you know, the color of the paint. That's my actual finger on the label. Oh, cool. I'm involved in all of it because I just feel like, like I have a relationship with anybody who pays any attention to me and they've been good enough to invite me into their home for a lot of years. And I feel that I want to um, take that relationship seriously. And I don't want to trade on their graciousness and kindness and the hospitality they've shown me for a lot of years. So it's just the way I function. And by the way, it doesn't make all of it easy because that means I'm involved. And that means lots of conversations and emails and phone calls and Zoom calls and looking at images and making notes and going back and forth and making adjustments. But I just simply feel I'm I'm better for it. Very cool. So um, the, the Sauvignon Blanc has been out for two years. Did I know now there's a, a rosé, which I, I want to talk about as well. Mm-hmm. Was the plan always to expand the line beyond the Savvy Bee? I think, you know, um, in the best possible world, we would have the opportunity. You know, we didn't know how the the 2019 would be received, especially because we were sort of, we felt being, you know, we were being a little bit, we were going a little bit rogue, um, not just like arbitrarily so, but trying to create something we really loved. Um, I think our intentions were to, you know, have a business that grew and continued to offer exciting liquid from a bottle, you know, that we felt proud of and wanted to drink ourselves. So I think after the 
2019 was, you know, received well, but also um, the customer really loved it. We felt obviously more emboldened to, you know, do this 2020, um, but, but definitely um, felt more confidence in pursuing the rosé. It was really important to Tim and Rob. I mean, they're businessmen and they're looking at a business and obviously all businesses have to grow. You can't sort of just hang your hat on one and the grapes are gone, right? So you got to start over again. <laughs> um, so I think we wanted to, but you don't know, you know, what kind of reception you're going to get and you can't count on a maturing, you know, that you'll mature, but we certainly wanted to. And it, it's been, it's been fantastic. So were you a big rosé drinker before launching the rosé? Yes. Much more so than I had been a Sauvignon Blanc drinker. Interesting. And did you – so did you – because of that, did you kind of have like a clear picture in your mind of the kind of rosé you wanted because you had been more of a rosé drinker? And what was that if you did? Yes. So um, as I've described, Sauvignon Blanc offered a certain specific kind of terror. Rosé offered a different kind of terror, only because I did know it. We've all had great rosés, and we've all had rosés that disappoint us or actually um, feel like they're hostile toward us. Right. Um, So I knew it, and I wanted to make sure I did it right. And my friends, I don't know about your friends, they drink rosé all summer, they're waiting for the moment. They now totally. drink it. They've sort of given up with, you know, Memorial Day to Labor Day. They've sort of pushed on in I mean, almost direction. all year long, long at this point. I feel like people who love it drink it. Yes, exactly. So I wanted to create something that obviously satisfied that sort of seasonal feeling, that relationship that you have with rose. But I also wanted it to be a be a rose that you could drink anywhere at any time and kind of recreate those feelings. And once again, Tim and, and Rob really wanted the same. We knew we wanted to make it in Provence because of that history um, and because of the knowledge of those particular, you know, vineyards, um, people who have them run them, the generations of family that have done it. Um, and so that's where we started. And I wanted, once again, this is going to sound familiar. I wanted a rosé that wasn't too cloying, but wasn't better than me trying to, you know, sometimes a rosé is so tight. <laughs> yeah, no, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's almost like it it's superior to the drinker. <laughs> and I wanted, I wanted sophistication and complexity, but I didn't want it to push me away. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. 100%. And I feel we did it. <laughs> Very so. Was that blending as well done in New York? Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And that one was hard because it was the dead of winter in the middle of a snowstorm. Oh wow! Which is like so anathema, right? To what we think about Rose. right, like getting in the mood. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, I have to say that I haven't yet been able to travel to to Tim and Rob in New Zealand, and obviously that's something I'm desperate to do. But when they come. Not only do they bring these vials of, you know, grapes, <laughs> um, basically, um, but they all they also have stories of every single vineyard, and you become very wrapped up in every family story or every, you know, vineyard story, and it becomes like very painful to not end up with a blend from a vineyard whose story is very compelling, very exciting, heartbreaking triumphant, you know, um, 
so I know as I'm picking, I'm like, oh no, we didn't pick that guys, but he's that guy that did this and that. Right. And um, so that's also a big part of it is just the storytelling and the history of where these grapes are coming from. So now that the brand's been in the market for you know two years, where would you like to see the brand go? I mean, do you have some, sometimes I talk to people who you come from other industries and then come into wine or spirits, et cetera. And they say they want the brand to ultimately sell. Like, you know, I, some people want their Clooney moment, let's call it right. right where right. other people want to have it in their family for generations, right? This is what they're going to give to their kids. Have you, have you thought about that? Well, fortunately I'm not, I don't have to more so because it's within the house of in vivo, which is Tim and Rob and this growing, exciting, growing business of theirs. I mean, personally, I'm, you know, I really love where we are and the business that I get to be part of. Um, I know they're growing and I can imagine that they're, they're becoming people that are interesting to other larger, say, houses. Um, But I would like to be able to work the way we work and not think about Um, our valuation in the world more so what are we offering customers how do we stay involved the way we like to be involved how does it stay intimate and personal Um, I mean obviously we want it to be a success I for them particularly want wine to be a success financially because they've put so much of their lives into it and they've done it all on their own which is deeply impressive and very moving Um, but I think the personal experience is is often just as important and I, and, and perhaps that might have something to do with, with our success um, is just, I think people know that this is a, um, this is personal and we care a great deal about every wine drinker's experience. Um, so I would like it if we can to, to grow within, within the home that, that it occupies. Well, so I think, you know, it's important for me to point out that, the reason you're saying these things, which I should have asked earlier, is what Tim and Rob let me know is you you are on the board of Invivo, right? So part of your Correct. your involvement is you're actually part of the entire company. Correct. Which then makes a lot more sense, I think, to listeners to understand, you know, why you'd like to see the entire company grow, which is really awesome. So I do have one last question that my staff sure. will kill me if I don't ask. Sure. Which is um, you know, everyone's very excited about the announcement of Sex in the City coming back. <laughs> will any of your wines make an appearance? So listen, Adam, this is such a, (laughs) this is such a weird world for me because I've never been good at, as I said earlier, trading on that relationship. I don't know that I exist in Carrie Bradshaw's world. Like literally, I don't think I exist. And I just feel like you cross lines when you do that. And the minute I think you kind of not just cross a line, but start kind of cross promoting. There's something that feels, it feels ugly to me. It feels um, like I'm exploiting something that's really important to people. And as much as I would like to feature in Viva wines, you know, on the set and background, not maybe not in my apartment, but in Charlotte's or Miranda's, I just feel like it's unethical. I feel like it's like the emollient clause, you know, like I just right. can't do it. Um, so probably not. I'm sure Rob and Tim hate hearing that. <laughs> and the Taub family who I adore, who are distributors here, who I am, you know, 
I am devoted to and I'm a humble servant, but I feel like viewers will feel exploited, taken advantage of in some way. So I feel like I have to be more principled about it. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. And I, I love the answer, actually. I think it makes a ton of sense. Uh, it's why so much, of, so many of us love you. So <laughs> thank you so much. This has been a really interesting conversation. Um, Next time and, longer, I hope. Yes, for sure. And we will, um, I mean, you can find the wines nationally. That's um, right. And you can also and, go to, if you, I don't know if anyone who may or may not be on Instagram, they can go to Invivo X SJP. And the really amazing thing that Tim and Rob do, have done on social media is if you go to Invivo X SJP on Instagram, there's a system of going to our website and typing in your zip code and you can find your local wine merchants. You can find restaurants that are um, serving the wine and, and lots of ways to get your hands on it. Amazing. Well, thank you so much again for taking the time to chat with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Adam. It was really lovely talking. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcast. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. VinePair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tastings Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.